for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're in a series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And my aim throughout this study is that we would increase our intellect, our knowledge about the scriptures, that we would inflame our affections for the one who is the living word, Jesus Christ, and that our will would be commanded by God's truth through the gospel, that we might experience God's transforming power in our lives. And so I'm asking God to work powerfully among our church in this series. We've already seen him do some some powerful work in the lives of people. And I want to invite you to pray with us throughout this study. We began our series by considering four foundational pillars upon which we must build our life in order for God to shape our life for glory through mission. And if you've seen a um, a bookmark that looks like this, or maybe the little business card, it says shaped at the top. On the front side, it has those four foundational pillars listed. We began with pillar number one, that we need to remember that God is faithful. From Deuteronomy chapter one through three, where Moses surveys the history uh, coming out of Egypt uh, to the promised land with the Israelites, and he reminds them of God's faithfulness. Foundational pillar number two is that we cultivate a heart for obedience. Chapter four, Moses just says to them, look, you've, you've got to obey. You've got to obey, not to impress God, but in order to respond rightly to God. And so this cultivating a heart of obedience we talked about is foundational for God to be able to shape our lives, being lived in humility before Him. Last week we talked about pursuing holiness and setting God's Word as our standard for holiness and and seeing God work in our hearts to conform us to the image of His Son, the One who is perfect and holy in every way. And so today, we conclude this first portion of our series of foundational pillars by looking at this, that if God is going to shape our life for glory through mission, we must learn to enjoy God's blessing. We must learn to enjoy God's blessing. I saw a picture the other day that reminded me of much of the demographic of Ozark It was two people who had been recently married who appeared to have it all, smiles larger than life on their their face, excuse me. They had each other, they had children, they had money, and they had a lot of stuff. They had everything that a person could want. But as I looked at the picture, which is a picture like I've seen so many different times in so many different ways, it seemed as though the Lord gave me an insight into our city The demographics of our city very much reflect a place where people have it all. And and this is the life that people so desperately run after, but too often the dream costs them real life. 
They have it all. And yet all too often, all is just not enough. Have you ever seen a picture of that? The Israelites were a people who would have it all in this new land. That They had been promised by God that it would come to them, but they would make a choice that the all God provided for them would not be enough, that there was an all they would prefer rather than what God had provided. And friends, when the all of God's provision ceases to be enough, you will run after everything else that the world promises to you. But the most potent testimony, the most powerful witness in life, the most faithful evangelism and the most effective gospel mission is this. For a Christian to faithfully enjoy all of God's blessings in the world. So my question to you, and really my, my challenge, my counsel for you today, is where you know that you do not live in the full enjoyment of God's blessings. Maybe it's a place where you feel like God slighted you. Maybe it's a point in your life where you feel unfulfilled or unsatisfied, and you wonder why God has allowed your heart to remain that way. Maybe it's in seeing what you have and thinking, God, this isn't enough. I want more. At that point in your life, I would say to you, that's where God wants to begin shaping your life for glory through mission. For if you will not allow God to resolve the angst of your heart with what He has provided for you, you will never be satisfied with what He has done for you. And that's what I want to talk about today. It is foundational for our lives to enjoy God's blessings. Now, let me just very briefly give a historical setting. The Israelites stand on the threshold of realizing God's promise to them in this new land. And this new land holds God's richest blessings for them. And so God leads Moses to prepare the people by teaching them the law. And in our passage today, Moses will conclude what I call his introduction to the book of Deuteronomy. He'll conclude his introduction and he'll prepare them to move into a fuller teaching and a fuller understanding of living God's law for their life. And so in Deuteronomy 5.22, Moses has just reminded them of God's salvation of deliverance from Egypt. And then we saw last week in verses 7 through 21, he gives them the ten words or the ten commandments, the ten, ten, the ten tenets of God's covenant. And now he's encouraging them to enjoy God's blessing. Go with me to verse 22 of Deuteronomy 5 and let's look at these verses These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the thick darkness, with a loud voice, and he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. 
And you said, Behold, the Lord God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die for this great fire will consume us? If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have and has still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. Stop there for just a moment. Moses captures the gravity of this moment that they just experienced with God. And, and verse 22, where he tells them that the words of the Lord he spoke in all of your midst of the assembly. This verse is kind of known as God's signature on the Decalogue. On the Ten Commandments, God says, these are the words I give you. He signs his name at the bottom of them to say, these are the words, and there are no more. In other words, they're sufficient for what I call you to. And so Moses reminds them of God's revelation. And you know, this kind of experience with God that they've had, it produces a distinct response in the people that we see. They're fear-struck. They're fear-struck from their experience with God. They confess God's distinctiveness. What do they say? Who's ever heard a God speak like this and yet live? I'm not taking my chances on that happening twice. And they said, Moses, you go do it. Right? We'll take a chance with you. We love you, Moses. Would you go do this for us? We would rather, it's, it's better for me to risk someone else's life than my own, Right? That's what they said. They, they appoint Moses to be a mediator for them with God. And they said, let God tell you and you tell us and we'll do whatever God tells you. And so the Israelites' experience with God was beyond their understanding. It was beyond their control. This is the distinctiveness of their response to God. And this is what we see. And, and, and what we understand is this, is that fear is a natural response to that which we do not understand and that which we do not control, right? This is why the first time I stepped off of wildfire at Silver Dollar City was the last time I stepped off of wildfire. And through that experience, I was convinced I don't need all of those other roller coasters. I'm done. Because fear is a natural response to that which we don't understand or we cannot control. You see, God is worthy of fear. But listen, friends, He doesn't leave us in the unknown of who He is. And so let's continue in verse 28. To see how this story plays out. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments. That it may go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. 
You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. Let's pause there for just a moment. God responds to the people. And he confirms that he agrees with their words. He expresses a powerful longing for his people, not only to fear him, but but more so to obey him. So, in other words, he doesn't want the fear to drive them away, but he wants it to draw them near. And he wants them to live in the blessing that he's provided for him. And, And here's something that's so powerful in verse 28 and following, that the God who speaks, which we've rest reference time and time again in the first five chapters is also the God who hears. The God who speaks is the one who hears. If you want to know what God is like, read Deuteronomy 5.29 and see how God longs for His people. His will and His desire is for people. God, who does not demand that we work to impress Him, works so that we can know that He has worked for us. Isn't that a beautiful picture? God is working so that we can know He has worked for us. God longs for His people to know Him. And so He provides a mediator for the people. He sends the people home and He brings Moses to stand before Him to receive the law. And the people recognize their need for a mediator. And God agrees and provides a mediator to receive and teach the law to the people so that they can obey in the land. And then as we move on, Moses reminds the people to be careful to obey. He says that that God is distinctive and our right response to Him should be a distinctive response of worship. And, And the way that we walk in life, it will show our ultimate hope for life. You see, God commands obedience because there is no other that compares to Him. We've seen that as He's told us that and as the people have acknowledged that. And Moses concludes this section by connecting God's commands with His promises that He might motivate people to obey. And so God commands that His people might know how to live. My commands show you how you should live My promise motivates you to obey. And so God himself empowers obedience to his commands by faith through the motivation of his promises that fill our hearts. We see this beautifully displayed today. And that's where I want us to to turn now. And I want us to look at, at five convictions that lead us to enjoy God's blessing as our great Reward. Here's the big idea I want you to walk away with from today. Enjoying God is the great reward of God's blessing filling my heart. Enjoying God is the great reward of God's blessing filling my heart. Now, a conviction. Let me, let me just say a word or two about conviction here. A conviction is any belief that is held deeply enough to cause one to live in a certain way in response to it. And so when I say to you today, five convictions 
will lead us to enjoy God's blessing. These are not magical incantations for you. These are convictions wherein which your belief must be anchored deeply enough that it changes your behavior as a result of it. I can't do that for you. I'm praying God does that in you. But in all of these things, I want you to understand what God has for you. What God has for you in these convictions. And so conviction number one is this. And we see it in verse 28. We've already referenced it. But we see this, that God listens to his people. This, friends, must be a defining conviction for us if God is to shape us for glory through mission and we are to enjoy His blessings, that God listens to His people. This first conviction is a powerful insight to understanding God. We've already talked about the distinctiveness that He speaks, but now... That is, that is multiplied and magnified when we see that he listens. If, as we have already confirmed repeatedly, speaking distinguishes God from all other false gods, then hearing deepens our understanding of why God speaks. God speaks and he listens that he might communicate with us. And through communicating with us, that he might commune with us. In other words, this is the very foundation of relationship with God. It's not just God telling you, God telling you, but God listens to you. God listens to you. You see, listening is a powerful communicator. What happens when we listen to someone? Genuinely listen, not the way that most of us listen. I I must confess, some of you don't know how to listen very well. Because it's easier for me to confess for you than it is for me. Right? That would be true of me as well. But when we listen, we add value to the person that is speaking. We honor them by receiving their words. We may or may not agree with them, but either way, we hear them and we listen to them. One of the most effective ways for us to show love to other people, sometimes in deeply intimate ways, and sometimes in more casual acquaintance ways, but nonetheless, it is a demonstration of love, is to simply do what? To listen to them. And to receive what they are saying. See, God listens. And knowing this of God is essential to trusting God. If you doubt that He listens to you, you will not bother to speak to Him. You will not bother to pray. But when you know that He does listen to you, He will become your first response because what you know of Him is that He is the one that is most able and capable and desiring to do something about your life whatever it is that you need. And so God loves us by speaking that we might know Him and listening that, to, that we might know He loves and cares for us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 says this, and this is the confidence that we have towards God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. He hears us. God listens And this is conviction number one that speaks to the heart like none other. God listens to his people. If you're going to enjoy God's blessings in your life, you must believe this so that it changes 
your behavior and your actions. God listens to his people. Conviction number two is this. God longs for his people to have a new heart that enjoys his blessing. God longs for his people to have a new heart that enjoys his blessings. We've looked at this in the first three sermons, and it culminates today. We have seen that it is impossible for the Israelites to obey without a changed heart. And we have said, it is such with us as well, that it is impossible for us to obey God in our own will, in our own strength, in our own desire, but rather we need a changed heart as well in order to obey God tells Moses that he has heard the people's confession and that they are right. And their correctness is not because their performance was perfect. Obviously, we've seen it wasn't. But rather, their heart was humble and submitted. And friends, a right heart is the key to knowing God. A right heart, not a perfect performance. A heart of holy fear is that which fuels a life shaped for glory through mission. You see, we fail to obey God, not because we fail in our performance, but because our heart strays from God. We, we forget about His power and about His glory. We lose a holy fear of Him. We think that His promises are, ah, oh, they're not that great. We think that His provision is not that faithful. And we begin to think that His power is not that mighty. Therefore, we conclude, why not try other gods? And very seldom do we meticulously walk through it that way. But usually it's a bing, 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 boom. Usually it's an inference of all of those things when we pursue the small, mediocre, less than considerable, but all seemingly desirable false gods of this world. It's in the instant of a moment, of a second, of a micro fraction of a second in which all of these assumptions are made about the God who is, and yet we say He's not as we run after false gods and false hopes that the world presents to us. We need a heart to know God in order to walk daily with Him and to enjoy His blessing. You see, external motivators, even a direct experience with God, are not sufficient to make us obey. This is important, friend. Sometimes you wonder why you walk away from Sundays and you have a great experience, but Monday your experience personally with God seems to suffer and be woefully insufficient for your life. And I'm going to tell you what, God never intended that the experience of worship with His people on Sunday be so sufficient for you that you wouldn't need anything other than. It plays a key role for you, but it is not the sum total for you in your obedience to God. Yes, we want you to walk away sensing that you've been at the foot of God every time we come together. We want you to have a larger than life, and an otherworldly kind of experience with this God who is not only imminently with us, but transcendent beyond us. But the Israelites saw God. And it wasn't enough to sustain their obedience. There is nothing we're ever going to create here on a Sunday that's going to outdo what God did on the mountain in front of the Israelites. And hear me, friends. We're not upset about that because that's not what we're trying to accomplish. 
we understand why God uses worship and how he uses it. And it does strengthen and build your life. It does preach the gospel to you. It does entertain you in the presence of God. But we understand that it's not one and done. Rather, obedience that walks with God daily only flows from a changed heart. And Deuteronomy 5.29 captures a powerful understanding of God that we desperately need. Go to verse 29 when he says this. God in verse 28 ends by saying, They are right in all that they have spoken. And then the first word, the first expression of verse 29 says this. Oh, that. Oh, that. That is a beautiful expression that I want you to capture today. It is an expression similar to what Jesus experienced and and did in Matthew 9, 36. when, When the gospel writer says he looked on the crowds and he had compassion. What's flowing out of God's heart in this Hebrew word here is compassion for his people. It is a longing from God. He's expressing that he longs for his people to have a heart that would fear and obey him. This is a beautiful word that is being used here that shows us the expression of God's longing. His expression is interesting because this word speaks of something given in the way that it is used in the Old Testament. This giving may include the physical granting of a gift. I give you a gift, and so it's something tangible that you can touch. But the way this word is used also refers to the giving of things that are intangible, like a blessing that is bestowed upon someone's life. But but the word studies tell us that in any case, and in every case, when this word is used for oh that every meaning given this verb can in fact be seen as a literal or figurative action of the hand. So whatever God follows this expression with, you need to understand that his desire is to give that to you from his hand. Are you ready? Are you open to receive? You see, this expression shows that God's concern for his people is seated in the depths of his heart. God's longing shows his heart to provide a new heart for his people. And so we must ask, what does God mean by a heart as this always? To fear me and to keep all of my commandments as he continues. If that is the center of his longing, what does that mean? We've talked about time and time again that heart, the term for heart in the Bible, is not just the seat of someone's emotions, but rather it's the center of a person's being. It's the core of the person. It's where their thoughts, it's where their affections, it's where the volition of the will, it's even where the conscience and the longings of the heart come together and become one. It's much more than the seat of the emotions. It is the center of your being. Therefore, a new heart, as God longs for here, is a new identity. A new understanding of you because of your understanding of God. 
That's what God longs to give to you. And so, listen, conviction number two says that we believe that God longs to provide a new identity through a transformed heart that obeys and enjoys his blessing. Listen, friends, this is so essential. This is so foundational, not just for you being successful, but for you understanding God. Otherwise, you will run yourself ragged. You will kill yourself trying to do something that pleases God and trying to live for Him. But what Deuteronomy 5.29 is telling us is that God wants to give you the very heart you need in order to know Him. That is the deepest recess of His heart for you. God desires a personal relationship with you and he is deeply, eternally committed to giving you everything that you need to accomplish it. The question is simple. Will you believe this to a depth that it will change the way you live? The third conviction that we see here today continues in verse 30. And so God says, go and say to them, return to your tents, but you stand here by me. And he tells Moses that, that, that I, will, uh, I will give you the law and then you will teach the law and the rules and the statutes to my people. Here's the third conviction for you to enjoy God's blessing. You must understand that God leads his people by his living word. God leads his people by his living word. Word. This is not a play on words. It's not a, 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 even a, a trickery of words. But you know who the living word is. The gospel of John tells us it's Jesus Christ. And so you know where I'm going with this point. But let's go there together and pray for God to do something unimaginable, inconceivable, and transformational in our lives. God plans to use Moses to lead his people. The people appoint him and God approves it. Moses goes before God and stands on behalf of the people. Everyone else goes home and Moses is left alone to stand before God. Sound familiar to you? God gives Moses the whole commandment to teach the people that they might obey in the land. You see, a powerful picture of God's work appears in these verses Moses, as a prophet, becomes clear at this point. And maybe prior to this point, had his ministry ended here, he might not have been acknowledged as the greatest prophet of the Old Testament. But here it becomes clear what God is using him for. A larger image, though, emerges through Moses. And Moses later tells the people in chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, he says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You see, Moses' leadership in the Old Testament points to a perfect prophet who would speak God's word perfectly to his people. That's the role of Moses. And you see, friends, Jesus came into the world as the perfect son and as the perfect prophet to go before God for the people. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 5 explains this way. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has, more honor than the house itself. 
Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see, in his life, Jesus came as a perfect man revealing the perfect fulfillment of the law. That's what he tells us. That he's the end of the law. And the end means not that the law ceases, but that it's fulfilled. It's complete. We see it in this man who lives it out in front of us. In his ministry, he taught the perfect fulfillment of the law. Go to Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And you know what Jesus is doing there? He's completing the law for us. He's showing us that the end of the law is love. That, that, that the completion of God's law is the fulfillment of it. It's love. In his death, he stood before, or excuse me, he was stood up before God on the cross where God's wrath against sin was placed completely on him and was satisfied. And then from his grave, he was raised up by God to confirm that the curse of the law and the condemnation of sin had been satisfied and removed. So Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, in his death, and in his resurrection, stood before God. God to save sinners by satisfying sin's curse that came to us through the law. John 1.17 says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I study this week. I'm, I'm reading about this and I'm, I'm fighting through how, how this works and trying to fight it out. And, and I'm drawn back to the words of this song. And since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Friends, the the flowing wounds of Christ are the very heart of God bleeding for us. It's the longing of God that comes to us. It's it's the revelation of, of who God is for us. And this is in His Son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus offered up His life in substitutionary atonement for sin on the cross, God came down to people in overwhelming, unimaginable, sacrificial, redeeming love for the worst of sinners, His very enemies. And that's who God came to redeem. Jesus is the greater Moses. He is the covenant keeper that brings the full promise of God's covenant to bear upon us. Through faith in Jesus, God wouldn't and couldn't put the burden of perfect performance on us because Jesus satisfied the law's demand for us. There is no burden to place upon us except for the burden of Christ. We can't be condemned by the law through faith in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has removed the condemnation that it brings to us. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper 
time. You see, Jesus fulfills the law. Justifying by his blood and satisfying God's wrath towards those who believe. And he reconciles man with God. Jesus redeems the curse by becoming a curse for us, Galatians 3.13 says. And, and, and goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 5 through 7, that he redeems those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, God's covenant is made complete in Jesus. In Jesus, we have a new heart that has God's law written on it. If you remember in Ezekiel, this is part of the promise of God's heart, of God's covenant, excuse me, that he would give us a new heart and then to have the law written on us. The law is not written on our heart to condemn us, but to show us holiness. That's what Romans chapter 7, verse 12 tells us. It's written on our heart to love God. Psalm 119, 97 tells us this. It's written on our heart that we might delight in life. Psalm chapter one verse two that it might provide for us a lamp for our feet and a light for our path psalm 119 105 love is the fulfilling of the law paul says in romans 13 and in jesus the holy spirit lives within to empower us and to lead us in this life condemnation is removed and spirit conviction leads us he leads us in conviction regarding sin because we're not perfect but jesus is but we can repent and turn back to jesus for forgiveness and cleansing he leads us in conviction of righteousness that as we follow each and every day he doesn't wait until we mess up as we wander through life but he orders our steps each and every one to follow him and it is the conviction of holy spirit god's spirit that he places in this new heart that he gives to us that leads us each and every step of our life each and every day and he convicts us in regards of judgment that he is worthy that he is the king that he is ruling and that he is reigning in this world and our fear doesn't drive us away from him but it draws us near to him God is alive and 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 we uh, uh, have this life in us and it's not that we live according to the flesh but Romans tells us that we live by the Spirit and we walk by the Spirit with Him in the light of righteousness. Jesus is righteousness. He is the perfect prophet. In Jesus, God's living word is alive in us, friends. And He brings peace because God accepts us in love and leads us in power to walk with Him daily conviction number three is this God leads his people by his living word Jesus Christ and if you are going to enjoy God's blessing you must understand such that you must believe to the extent that it changes the way you live that Jesus is actively ruling and reigning in this world and in your heart because God leads his people by his living word the fourth conviction, verses 32 and 33 says, You shall be careful to do them 
shall not turn aside. You shall walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you. The fourth conviction is this, that obeying God means walking with Him daily. Obeying God means walking with Him daily. Moses reminds the people to be careful to obey God's commands. God gave no other words. Why? Because no other words were needed. No other words were needed. And walking with the God means that, uh, that we obey God's commands in living with Him. You see, God's word alone is sufficient for us to obey God's will. That's what 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 tells us. It is sufficient sufficient whatever the need God's word is sufficient to overcome it by granting it how quickly we turn away from God by adding to or taking away from his word the fundamental legalists wants to say yes but here's what God really meant and they begin to compound upon it the licentious one wants to say God's word said but God didn't really mean that and he wants to back away from it and take away from it And God said, do not turn to the right or to the left. I'm convinced there's a reason we think of fundamental radicals on the right and uh, uh, um, uh, liberal unbelief on the left. Because God said what? Don't turn to the right or to the left. Don't be either one. Be me. You don't need anything else. And just as the Israelites turned away from God's word when they doubted in the wilderness, and then later in the land, so too we... We turn away from God's word. We, we question its validity. You know, the greatest attacks in the last 50 years against Christianity have been direct attacks against the Bible. Do you think it's any wonder why some of the greatest discoveries that make this the most phenomenal written record ever in the history of humanity and even before history was recorded have done nothing but validate this book? That's all I say. And yet we question its validity. We question its authenticity, don't we? What do we say? Oh, God, did you really mean that? We question its necessity or its benefit for our life. We disbelieve its power because we feel strongly about another hope or another word that we hear, another promise that the world gives. We speculate over its relevance for our life today. Man, that happened so long ago. Could it really be true today? And yet God's word remains his power for his people to walk in daily obedience with him. When Jesus teaches us to pray, what does he say? He says this, give us today our daily bread. Why? Because following Jesus is a daily walk. And His Word is sufficient for you to walk with Him daily. God's Word remains His power for His people to walk in daily obedience. Friends, if you're going to enjoy God's blessing, you must believe to the extent that it changes the way you live. That obeying God means walking with God daily by the Spirit in His Word. The fifth conviction, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6. God is our compelling motivation 
that lives in our heart. God is our compelling motivation that lives in our heart. I often think this is where we trip up and then when we back up through the other convictions because we've tripped up here, it causes us just to stumble all over those. Your Christian life is not about performing for God. It's about God being alive in you. Therefore, when you know what God wants you to do or to stop doing, it's not yours just to go launch into action. But first, it's yours to kneel in submission. That's what I want you to see here. Why? Because God wants to so fill your heart, not that He overcomes your will, but that He overwhelms it with His grace. Look what He says to us. We've seen repeatedly in the first five chapters that before God commands anything, He reminds us, right? What's the first foundational pillar? Remember, God is faithful, right? And then number two is what? Cultivate a heart of obedience. And then number three... Pursue holiness. And number four, enjoy. And if we miss number one, we don't have a shot at giving, getting two, three, and four right. We need to be motivated, and God provides the motivation that we need. His motivation to obey is a comprehensive covering for our heart. That's what I love about these five motivations that he gives, because here's what he does. He takes the center of our being, and he motivates it completely. Our will, our mind, our emotion, our conscience, and, 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 and friends, all of who we are, God motivates us. He sets our mind to be most appealing by His truth. He sets our affections to be most captivated by His grace. He sets our will to be most commanded by His word. And He sets our desire, that, that hunger of life for glory, man. We were, you know why people get so wrapped up in themselves and consumed with it and can't stop? Because there is an insatiable desire for the heart to be filled with glory. And we all have glory definitions that are different from one another, but we all want glory. God designed us to be consumed with glory. He just didn't design us to be satisfied with lesser glories than himself. And this is how he motivates us. Look, in verses 1 through 3, every time you see the word that, a motivation will follow. First of all, God motivates by his commands that instruct the intellect. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, 17 says. God forms faith in our life through his word. And so regularly reading God's word means that faith continually grows. I don't have time to argue with you right now about not understanding or it gets boring or, you know, just all of that. I just want you to know this, that, that God's motivating you to understand the power of his word. It's not a magic trick. It's a relationship. The second motivation that he gives to us is this. He motivates by confidence that encourages our will, our volition. That part of us that says, I want this. I will pursue this. You see, nothing moves us to accomplish greater things than the confidence that we can when we know that we can live in obedience. 
And our confidence is not in ourself. It's not absent of Christ, but it's in Christ's abiding presence, knowing that he is with us. And this is the confidence he gives to us to crush sin, to put it away, to be done with it and have nothing else to do with it, as Colossians tells us to do. The third motivation he gives to us is that God motivates by a fear of him that awes our affections. That awes our affection. Nothing is more powerful than the helplessness of a child that runs to a father that is inconceivably strong and big. But that child has no fear because they run boldly into the arms because it's a loving father. And that's the image that motivates our affections. God, who alone is most to be feared, draws us near because we're confident of his love for us. Hebrews tells us, draw near with confidence. The fourth motivation that he gives to us is the joy of moments that inspire the heart's desires. He says this, that your days may be long. That your days, a sweet day is one you do not want to end, right? I mean, and, and you realize that when the sun is setting, this, this is precious. I do not want this moment to end. And here's what God says. God makes your days long. He fills the heart with each passing moment that extends his blessing and blesses with even more captures the sweetness of life. And then he does this. He motivates by reward in life that satisfies the trajectory of the heart's longings. He says this, that it might go well with you and multiply. When something is so good and sweet to the soul, we most desire to see it multiply. And so we invest our life each day to cultivate and to multiply the work of God in us that we might pass it on through us. That's why you, parents, are trying to leave a legacy for your children. Why? Because it's good. And God is putting that desire in your heart. And God rewards us by satisfying our heart's longing within him, uh, with himself. And so, so as we look at these motivations, we must realize this, that, that from our belief, it must move us to change our behavior. This conviction is that God is our compelling motivation that lives in our heart. All right, that's a lot. I hope God blesses you this week as you continue to pray through it, think through it, and consider it. As the worship team returns, let me just say a couple of words to direct our minds to respond to the Lord. You can't love nor can you serve God because of what he can do for you and expect that you will enjoy what he gives to you. If you're going to enjoy God's blessings, you can't just love him for what he can do for you. You can't just serve him because of what he can do for you. Otherwise, if you do not believe and trust that joy in life is his longing for you, Whatever his hand brings to you will not satisfy you. You see, friends, I labor in these convictions today because until your belief deepens in your heart to change your behavior, it will only be a source of frustration like a big burr under the horse's saddle. 
you might be able to continue with it there but it will irritate and it will ultimately infect if you do not deal with it it will damage you'll always experience disappointment with God you'll never be satisfied with what he gives because it will just never be enough I read an article a couple of years ago that was talking about pay and compensation and this, this article was specifically talking about just satisfaction in the workplace. And here's what it said. I know you're not going to believe me, but the article said this. Pay and compensation is not an accurate indicator of job satisfaction for people. I said, well, I bet it is. I don't see anybody working for free. Right? Right? You're with me there, right? And then it kept saying this. It said this, that compensation was not a true indicator that increases job satisfaction. Sure, we love it when we get a raise and we're willing to risk our satisfaction on a raise, right? And for a time, money alleviates dissatisfaction. But not long into that raise, when we get established in that new amount, we begin to feel that the work demand is heavier than the payout's provision. Funny how that happens, isn't it? And you go, man, I, I used to think it, but I don't, I don't know that this is true anymore. You see, when we don't or when we can't enjoy what God blesses us with, without looking at everything else, it's pretty simple. It's because we're not trusting Jesus. We're not trusting what God is giving to us. Our heart is leaning into, our heart is longing for a false hope, a, a false gods. And God's commands become burdensome and bothersome to us. You see, when we enjoy God's blessing, that is the intentional activity of life that keeps us swimming in the fullness of God's presence and glory. Enjoying God, friends, is the great reward, not of what He gives, but of who He is. And that's His longing for you. That's His work for you. That's His invitation to you today. Are you enjoying God and all of His blessings because He is your great reward? Let me pray and then let's sing. God, thank You for Your goodness and for Your grace. God, help us not to believe the lies of the world that tell us there is another. Help us to believe your word that says there is none other. And God, today as your spirit works in our hearts and our lives, you're going to show us places where we put more faith and more trust in the promises of this world than in your promises. Where we've looked to the world to provide for us what only you can satisfy us. God, I pray for the grace to repent and to turn back to you. In Jesus' name. Friends, if you need to come for prayer, we invite you to come. The altar's open. An elder will be here to pray with you. But let's stand and respond to the Lord.